Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this week's episode, you'll hear from Aspie experts discussing recent developments in tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Look, I think Bolton's spot on. Um, you know, both the um, Singapore summit and the Hanoi summit, I never had any real um, belief that anything would come of those. We also hear from Alex Josky on his latest report, The Party Speaks for You, about the Chinese Communist Party's overseas influence and interference operations. So in this report, I was really trying to show the structure of the system behind these activities. But first, Aspie's Michael Shoebridge sat down to talk with Shashank Joshi, defense editor at The Economist, about the recent India-China border tensions. Right, well, hello, everybody. Uh, it's Michael Shoebridge here, Aspie's uh, Director of Defense Strategy and National Security. And I'm joined by The Economist, uh, Shashank Joshi, to talk about the Indo-Chinese border clashes and uh, the background and, and also what it might mean for future strategic relationships. Shashank, we've, we've seen the greatest number of casualties between China and India since their 1967 uh, conflict, and um, that seems to be significant in itself. So looking at what's happened just in the last couple of days, do you think this is the end of escalation on the border for now, or do you think we might see more skirmishes and more casualties on both sides? Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. Um, I think we've had a false dawn before, of course. Uh, on, on June 6th, both armies said they were uh, had agreed a disengagement plan. And of course, a few days later, we saw uh, an extremely serious clash with fatalities, as you say, for the first time in 45 years. So the news that we saw on Tuesday that there had been another plan, another de-escalation agreement, I think has been greeted with a great deal of scepticism and and cynicism on the Indian side. Uh, No one is quite sure how it will play out. I think we should remember here there are three points of standoff in Ladakh, which is this territory up in the mountains. It's part of the old princely state of Jammu and Kashmir. And the Chinese are contesting, and I say contesting rather than intruding, because of course that's that's a great de- another debate. Um, at three sites, one of them is the Galwan River Valley, and that's where we saw these very bloody clashes last week. The other one is Hot Springs, which is a little bit to the south. It's a bit of an Indian salient into Chinese-held territory, and the last bit is Pangong Lake, this beautiful long, slender lake, uh, which is uh, disputed between the two sides. And there we saw another brawl, albeit not a fatal one, back in May. So we don't know what the de-escalation agreement covers. We don't know whether it will take place at all three sites. We don't know how far back they'll move, uh, you know, a few kilometers or tens of kilometers. We don't know whether there's going to be a buffer zone that will forbid patrols in those areas. Until we know all of those things, I think it would be optimistic to conclude this the risk of escalation is now finished. Tempers are very high on both sides. Um, troops are in much closer proximity to each other than they would ordinarily be. And therefore, I still think the risk of a inadvertent clash is higher than it has been for many years. And you're right. We've heard these comforting noises about de-escalation before, including um, earlier in June, as you say. And is it another factor that both sides are building more infrastructure and putting more military personnel and and weapons in this disputed area. So you're right, even if they pull back 
uh, a short way, there's still a build-up happening on, on both sides of this disputed border. Absolutely. It depends what we mean by build-up, of course. Um, the, there are sort of a couple of causes of this crisis, I would say. One of them is, is the broader strategic picture and the state of relations between India and China. And we can get onto that a bit later on, perhaps. But the other one, as you say, is the fact that these are very remote areas. Uh, and there is no border, of course. There's something called a line of actual control, which is defined really by how each side patrols and sides it, decides it runs. It, it's a subjective line. Um, and so your ability to patrol, your ability to send forces uh, to the line of actual control to establish your claim is very, very significant. For many years, China had superior logistics on its side of the border in Ladakh. It had better roads. It had railways able to move troops towards the LAC. It had airfields. What has happened in the past 10 years, really, across successive governments, not just the Modi government, but also its predecessor, and particularly in the last few years, is a uh, Indian catch-up on border infrastructure. They've reactivated old high-altitude airstrips. They've built north-south roads that let them get troops all the way up to the really remote places and patrol. They've built um, uh, new sorts of bridges in remote valleys, including Galwan. All of that means, uh, Indian commanders tell me at least, that they are meeting Chinese patrols much, much more often than they would have done 15 years ago. So mm. even if you don't intend for anything to happen, that proximity, that friction is automatically going to cause these sorts of problems. And as you say, there is no agreement on the line of actual control. In fact, the Chinese have studiously avoided accepting any definitions of agreement and mainly rejected Indian descriptions of where that line may be. An interesting thing for me, contrasting that picture of the Indian response to Chinese um, facilities and construction is contrasting with the South China Sea, where this same sort of ink spot strategy of creating more infrastructure of, out of Beijing has led to increased de facto control. Whereas um, in the case of the, the border with India, India has responded with its own infrastructure building, as you say. So it's maybe learned some lessons looking at the South China Sea. Of course, the land domain is very different to the maritime domain in that sense. There is much more space to play with. Uh, you know, the Spratleys or the Paracels are relatively small contained territories. And if someone builds something on, you know, Fari Cross Reef, it's, it's not easy to then get your own little square meter of it and build something countervailing. Whereas if, if the other side builds a radar station uh, a kilometre behind the LAC in a way that you think threatens your positions or puts an observation post on a steep hill that looks over your, your key you know, road up to Dollar Begoldi, well, you have options. You can, you can surge acclimatised forces to the area. You can build your own mm. patrolling post on another slope in a point which is more advantageous to you. So the mm. terrain affords more opportunities for this kinds of tussling. I would say the other really interesting thing is, you know, when this all this occurred 10 years ago, we didn't really know what was going on, um, other than through a few reports here and there. We now have open source imagery, including satellite imagery, that gives us insight into all of this. And of course, uh, Nathan Russo, your own analyst, uh, has done, I think, a fantastic job, amongst others, uh, of uh, bringing to light some of this stuff and analysing it in ways that wouldn't be possible uh, a decade ago. That's a big yes. change in how we view and analyse these sorts of territorial conflicts. 
Yes, and he's mapped out those three locations uh, you mentioned. I wanted to move on to the to the casualties because I think this is really uh, interesting and important too. So we've heard from the Indians that uh, they had 20 casualties and they've talked about maybe up to 40 Chinese casualties, but we haven't heard anything out of Beijing about casualties. In fact, uh, Beijing has been strikingly low-key about the whole affair. Do you think this is tied up with two things? One, it's actually quite confronting for the PLA to suffer casualties because they've sold themselves and the Chinese people on the fact that they're now this world-class military with high-end equipment, and here they are having a mud wrestle in the dark with Stone Age weapons and probably losing people. And two, Beijing is using this as another case of when they choose and choose not to stoke nationalism. How, How do you look at it? I think both those factors are in play, Michael. The Indian side, let's remember, loses casualties all the time. The Indian army is a force that really gets a punishing on many borders. Every week these days, it's losing people on the line of control with Pakistan in shelling, in cross-border fire, in terrorist attacks. Uh, It's absolutely normalized, I think, to suffer those kinds of casualties in some ways. Uh, Of course, big casualties still cause upsurges in tension and emotion, whether that's in a terrorist attack or in a brawl like this, but they are accustomed to it. The People's Liberation Army, let's be very clear here, has not lost people, has not had fatalities in, in combat since the 1980s in skirmishes with Vietnam. Uh, It has lost people on peacekeeping operations in very small numbers. It has lost people in internal security duties at times, I think, but no combat fatalities for for 30, 40 years. Which means no one currently serving in the PLA has experienced combat casualties in the units that they've been in or led. That's right. I, I, exactly. I mean, I, there, there are some very senior officers who, who were in the force at the time there would have been casualties with Vietnam. But as you as you know, they are being, you know, they're, they're, they're at the end of their careers, yeah. uh, the very tail end. And there are very few of them. So there's this part of part of it is that is that the other part of it, as you say, is that the Chinese want to keep this episode under wraps. Uh, it's not just refusing to acknowledge casualties, which is something, by the way, they've uh, uh, the, the MIT academic Taylor Fravel points out they haven't done in any of their conflict. So it's not just to do with this. They don't publish casualty figures immediately after a conflict at any point. This is just the way the PLA has always operated. Um, But there is another dimension, which is that the Chinese state-run press studiously ignored these terrible clashes, uh, given, you know, however obviously serious they were, you wouldn't find a trace of them on the front page of the People's Daily or the Global Times or, or any of the other major outlets. And the reason for that, I think, is fairly simple. They don't want to cause an upswell in nationalist sentiment on Chinese social media, amongst the Chinese public, in a way that would tie their hands, would compel them to escalate, and would make it more difficult to diffuse the situation. I don't think the Chinese leadership intended for this to be such an intense geopolitically salient dispute. Uh, And now that it has become one, I think they would rather see it quietly dealt with. Which tells me something even more interesting. It's probably the last thing that we've got time to talk about, but I'd say it's maybe the most important, which is what has this border dispute done to the strategic relationship between India and China? And how is it playing into larger global events, including uh, Beijing's damaged reputation as a result of the pandemic, uh, 
and also the damage that Beijing is incurring through its much more aggressive diplomacy and some of its more expansionist behavior, not just on the Indian border, but in the South China Sea. So is what, what are the calculations in Delhi around this and how, how it's shifted their thinking around China? I spoke to a former Indian foreign secretary and an ambassador to China uh, a week ago, and what she told me was this would be a turning point in relations. And I completely agree. Um, for the last 10 years, India and China have had an increasingly competitive relationship in the Indian Ocean, uh, in the South Asian land borders, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, in Pakistan, um, at the global level. And they have both sought to keep that competition within bounds. Neither side wanted to push the other one too far away. And so India, as Australia knows all too well, for example, was wary of over-militarizing the Quad, for example, by having Australia in the Malabar exercises. Uh, China also, you know, if you look at its, its state media rhetoric, was actually uh, pretty generous to India in a way that it never was to the Americans, uh, knowing that that was a, a careful calculation. I think that era of stable, managed competition within boundaries is going to move to a new epoch of more vigorous competition that will spill over in messy ways. And I think we're seeing some indications of that already. Um, this week, we saw that the Indians exclude Chinese high-risk vendors like Huawei from their 5G networks. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, a fair to say clearly a state response to the latest escalation. We have seen economic boycotts, um, uh, which, which by and large are not like the Chinese one, state organized. Um, but in the longer term, I think what we're gonna see is an acceleration of many of the diplomatic trends that, that you and I both know about, a strengthening of the Quad, a strengthening of India's relations with America and American allies in the, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and in turn on the Chinese side, a deepening of the relationship with Pakistan, perhaps more of a Chinese interest in the Kashmir dispute, perhaps more of a Chinese interest around the Indian periphery. So that stable competition is going to evolve into something that is a bit more spiky, a bit more hard-edged. And of course, incidents like this, I think, could well become a little bit more common. Mm. And I, I think that is fundamentally uh, important. Uh, to, to me, you know, I've, I know you've talked about uh, before about India maybe being a bit more cynical uh, when it looks at China than uh, a bunch of other countries in the past, probably including Australia. But to me, there's a little bit of a parallel with the shift in international thinking around whether or not China could become a responsible stakeholder. You know, for at least a couple of decades, that really was the guiding concept of working with China economically and strategically. Uh, that they would be a responsible stakeholder rather than an assertive and reasonably destructive stakeholder, which I think is is what uh, the the new assessment is. And I wonder, do you see that parallel with India, that that movement from a more positively engagement driven approach towards one that really recognizes the Beijing that we're seeing? and responds to the behavior and the direction that China is taking. And that that is the shift. I think that the Indian debate has always been a little bit more cynical than the American debate has been at the equivalent periods. If you go back to 1998, when America, uh, when India had its nuclear tests, the defense minister in India at the time famously wrote a letter to Bill Clinton saying uh, that 
China was the main reason for this. And in, in, in an interview, he said China was enemy number one. No one in Washington would have used that language back in 1998. Yeah. So the Indians have, I think, always looked at the American responsible stakeholder debate uh, with a bit of a sort of some raised eyebrows. But nonetheless, despite that cynicism, they have seen very powerful incentives to maintain a, a stable relationship with China, not in the hope that it would evolve into some kind of happy, cuddly uh, geopolitical beast, but on the basis that there was an enormous asymmetry of power here. The Chinese defense budget is still five times bigger than India's, for example. The difference is not, I think, a transition from a belief in responsible stakeholderism to a disillusionment. I think it's a change in tactics, a change in a sort of willingness to suspend a policy of restraint and caution and move towards something more competitive, perhaps in the same way that the Trump administration has, which is also a shift to competition. Mm. Uh, and I think that as this unfolds, we'll see more of that amongst the Indian foreign policy elite. Yes. Well, look, uh, Shawshank, we are, we are out of time, but thank you so much. I think what you've done is take us from mud wrestles at high altitude in the dark to um, geopolitics and, and global strategy. And I think, think you're right to, to talk about it in those terms. So it'd be great to talk to you again uh, as things continue to unfold. But I think you've really helped uh, put some insight around um, what looked like a messy set of border struggles. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Look forward to being back on soon. Next, Aspie research intern Tracy Beattie speaks to senior Aspie analyst Dr. Malcolm Davis about the latest developments on the Korean Peninsula, including North Korea's destruction of the joint liaison office in Kaesong. Thank you for being with us today, Malcolm. So this month marks two years since the historic 2018 Trump-Kim summit in Singapore, but since then we have seen a deterioration of relations in the Washington-Seoul-Pyongyang Triangle, and in the last week alone, North Korea has exercised a series of hostile actions against South Korea. Malcolm, could you tell us a bit more about the current situation in North Korea and why there seems to be this sudden burst of hostilities? Well, if, if you go back to the failure of the Hanoi summit in uh, 2019, um, uh, sorry, in 2018, um, you know, it, it was um, a real blow to the process um, because, um, you know, you had expectations were high that, you know, peace would break out on the Korean Peninsula, both between South Korea and North Korea and also between the US and North Korea, and it hasn't happened. Um, the Americans weren't prepared to lift sanctions against North Korea, and the North Koreans weren't prepared to denuclearize, which is you know, something that I think everyone realized was never going to happen in the first place. So fast forward to today, and you have a situation two years later, uh, whereby the North Koreans are saying, look, we've waited for two years, gone through all this sort of summitry process with the Americans, and nothing has changed. And so from Pyongyang's perspective, they wanted to place pressure uh, on South Korea uh, Firstly, to get South Korea to pressure the US to lift sanctions, but also, I think, to drive a wedge between Seoul and, and Washington, D.C. So the destruction of the inter-Korean liaison office uh, in Kaesong was the first step in that process. Uh, Kim Yo-jong, the sister of Kim Jong-un, the, the supreme leader in Pyongyang, indicated that there was a series of provocations to follow including uh, the military, the Korean People's Army reoccupying 
the Mount Kumgang area as well as Kaesong industrial area. Potential for uh, military exercises within the Korean North Korean side of the DMZ, uh, which would have all reversed process, progress that had been made since 2018 when you, know, you started to have this deter- detente period beginning to break out. And the concern was that that would go so far that it would generate the risk of conflict and insecurity and incidents along the DMZ or along the northern limit line at sea. So the interesting thing that we were all preparing for that, we were all getting ready for uh, essentially a a, a really tense period. And now, yesterday, Kim Jong-un has announced that he's reversing that provocation campaign or suspending it um, and basically rolling back everything that Kim Yo-jong said would happen. And that's a really interesting outcome and completely unexpected. And now all the Korea watchers, you know, myself included, are kind of scratching our heads thinking, well, why are they doing this and what's happening next? So it seems like another brinkmanship is at play currently. So how do you think Seoul and Washington would respond to any further escalations by North Korea? Well, if the if the rollback of these provocation campaigns is is a real thing and is is sustained, that's a good thing, and so that'll be uh, well received in Seoul and in Washington D.C. If it's on the other hand some sort of maskirovka, uh, Russian for trickery, um, whereby they try to place the South Koreans off guard and then do some sort of surprise move, uh, I think everyone in the South will be on guard because it seems bizarre that the North Koreans, having pushed this confrontation to this level, including by blowing up a, a key building in, in South North-South Dialogue, um, now suddenly are backing down very quickly. So either they've received um, very strong messages from the South to the effect, go no further or we'll retaliate harshly, or maybe Kim Jong-un has been placed under pressure from Beijing or Moscow uh, to back down uh, rather than raise, raise the risk of war on the Korean Peninsula. Or it could be that there's some sort of internal political wrangling within Pyongyang, which is probably the most interesting scenario to think about, is if maybe Kim uh, Jong-un is is unwell or in, uh, infirm and Kim uh, Yo-jong uh, was making her power play, she pushed it too hard and Kim Jong-un has now pushed back uh, because he doesn't want to see his power gone. But I do think that from Seoul's perspective, they'll be watching very closely to see how genuine the North Koreans are in terms of reversing this. Um, and from Washington's perspective, if they can tear their gaze away from uh, the, the the election campaign and COVID-19 and, and various different other issues that are consuming national attention there, um, obviously they're very, going to be very concerned about the possibility that the North Koreans could test a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile, or even worse, do a nuclear test. So you've already mentioned a bit about Kim Jong-un's younger sister, Kim Yo-jong, a new player in the North Korean leadership game. How will her rise play out in North Korea? She seems to be a bit more hawkish in her official statements. Very much so. Uh, she She's coming over as extremely militant. Uh, and once again, her rise, wherever that continues uh, will depend on just exactly what is the political situation occurring in Pyongyang at the moment. Um, If we are to assume uh, that, yes, it continues, um, she's likely to be an Empress Dowager type figure um, until Kim Jong-un's son uh, comes of age. Um, And that's probably an interesting 
scenario because if she assumes and uh, and, and grabs power for herself as Kim Jong-un maybe uh, recedes in the background because of ill health and so forth, um, is she really going to be prepared to surrender that power to the son when he comes of age? So that's setting up a potential leadership um, tussle in the future. But right at the moment, we're all kind of watching her very closely because she is coming on so strong and so powerful. Is she doing that with the blessing of Kim Jong-un? Probably. Uh, I can't imagine it otherwise. But if she pushes too far and too fast, that might be then seen to be a challenge to Kim Jong-un's authority and he might snap her back then, which is what this could be. There's a lot of variables at play at the moment, but we'll sort of move on towards America's leadership on the peninsula. So John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor to the White House, has recently published a book titled The Room Where It Happened. Now, his book has faced significant backlash by South Korea for mocking President Moon Jae-in's unification agenda and basically revealing that the summit was nothing but a photo opportunity for President Trump and Kim Jong-un. What are your thoughts on Bolton's claims, considering that these historic meetings would represent the hopes of millions on the Korean Peninsula? Look, I think Bolton's spot on. Um, you know, both the um, Singapore summit and the Hanoi summit, I never had any real um, belief that anything would come of those. And certainly what came out of the Singapore summit was this very bland statement, which really said nothing. Um, everyone knew that North Korea had no intention whatsoever to get rid of its nuclear weapons. And so this was more about a photo op for President Trump um, and something that he could promote to his base as a foreign policy win than it was of real substance in terms of trying to find uh, an equation or, or an outcome that where the North Koreans might actually think about edging back from continuing to build their nuclear capabilities up. That would have been a very difficult thing to do, very difficult to verify and monitor and enforce any agreement. But, you know, if, if we had done it in a sort of like a step-by-step -step gradual manner to provide incentives to the North to, in return, they give up certain capabilities on a step-by-step -step basis, that might have worked. But instead, the Americans said, no, we want comprehensive, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization up front, and then we'll lift the sanctions and we'll give you the peace treaty. And the Americans were, were never going to accept anything less. And I think justifiably because the North Koreans can't be trusted, but the North Koreans were never going to denuclearize in the first place. So it was a pro the summits were a process that really went nowhere because of the way they were structured and the approach by both sides. Could Bolton's claims possibly diminish the US's role in future negotiations, both in terms of working via South Korea as well as directly with North Korea? Two possibilities here. Firstly, Trump gets re-elected in November. Uh, and secondly, Trump loses and he leaves office and Biden becomes president. Uh, the interesting question with, with both of those is how do either outcomes deal with a nuclear North Korea that maybe has gone down the path of further ICBM tests and nuclear tests uh, between now and um, next year? Do we go back to fire and fury with Pyongyang, uh, which really doesn't lead anywhere but raises the risk of military conflict? I'm not sure that's an answer. I think that North Korea is a de facto nuclear weapons state. So we have to work around that. Um, but what we can do is engage with the North Koreans um, at a diplomatic level to try and reduce um, the risk of conflict on the Korean Peninsula. Um, and so um, that's where I would see Biden, for example, uh, putting the effort on, uh, is, is how do you mit mitigate risk and minimize risk on the Korean Peninsula 
to keep a lid on things, accepting the fact that you can't get rid of North Korean nuclear weapons. You, de you deal with the North Korean nuclear weapons and the ICBM threat through deterrence and enhanced deterrence. And I think either the Trump administration or a Biden administration needs to strengthen deterrence against that, that threat. Thank you very much for your insights, Malcolm. It will definitely be very interesting to see which direction the Korean issue would take and how that would also affect the broader security environment. Oh, yes, I think that North Korea is always interesting to watch and it's always unpredictable as you know the last 24 hours have shown. Thank you very much. Finally, Program Coordinator for ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, Louisa Bochner, speaks to analyst Alex Josky about his latest report, The Party Speaks for You, about China's united front system of overseas influence and interference operations. So Alex, last week you released a report called The Party Speaks for You about foreign interference conducted by the Chinese Communist Party. In the report, you talk about the United Front system, which is used to conduct these operations abroad. I was hoping you could start by telling me a little bit about the history of the United Front system and what it is and how it got to be what it is today. The United Front system is sort of a slightly different concept to the United Front Work Department or United Front Work. It refers to the bureaucratic system of agencies and party leaders and front groups that are actually carrying out United Front work, which is all about building a greater alliance of people the party can mobilize and draw on to expand its influence, to expand its power. And that, that's really what the United Front is. It's this, this coalition of the Communist Party and groups that are aligned with its objectives. It's come to people's attention in recent years, particularly in Australia, because it's been linked to quite a few cases of political influence or even political interference, which is covert influence. So in this report, I was really trying to show the structure of the system behind these activities and show how it's a lot broader in scope than I think people appreciate. Uh, it's more structured than people appreciate, and its objectives are, are quite broad, not just including political influence, but also going to uh, influencing student organizations, influencing media and transferring technology back to China. What I found really interesting in, in the report is you discussed the, how the United Front has a long history and, and how closely tied it is to President Xi Jinping and his family. So can you tell me a bit about this history? Xi Jinping, in the report, I refer to it as a Xi family business because his father, Xi Zhongxun, was a member of the Politburo and also a member of the Central Secretariat, which is this body that carries out the day-to-day -day work of the Politburo. The Politburo only meets occasionally and the day-to-day -day operations are handled by this central secretariat. So during the 1980s, when the elder C was in the central secretariat, his responsibility was overseeing the United Front system. And that was drawing on a lot of experience he'd had engaging in United Front work, particularly targeting Tibet. So in the 1950s, he was a major figure trying to befriend the Panchen Lama and the Dalai Lama in Tibet. He succeeded with the Panchen Lama. Initially, he was quite friendly uh, with the Dalai Lama. And I think even recently, the Dalai Lama referred to Xi Jinping as his friend. When they met in the 1950s, the Dalai Lama even gave him a watch that Xi Jinping was reportedly seen wearing 30 years later. And Xi Jinping's siblings as well are also involved in what's essentially United Front work. 
His elder sister worked in the part of the Chinese military tasked with political influence and United Front work, the political work department liaison bureau. We're not too clear about exactly where his younger brother, Xi Jinping, was working, but it seems like he might have also been working in this same part of the Chinese military, uh, using an alias, engaging in political influence operations against Taiwan. Xi Jinping himself in the 1980s was uh, an official in Fujian province, which is a real hotspot of United Front work against Taiwan and Chinese diaspora communities. So for his entire life and career, he's been brought up in this United Front system world. I think what's really interesting about that history is that it really speaks to how complicated and ingrained um, within the CCP's operations um, the United Front work is, which to me, it feels like it's something that, that you're only just uncovering in the Australian context um, and people don't and policymakers don't understand the full scope here in Australia. So I was hoping you could tell me a bit more about how that works. So you've got a visualisation in the report with the CCP leadership at the centre and the United Front agencies who carry around the work around this and the groups targeted um, at the very edge um, who include, you know, the community and and businesses and and other groups like that. Could you tell me a little bit about that um, structure? Yeah, so for this report, I took a sort of uh, a top-down approach to studying the system. So I started by looking at who is actually running it, uh, what are the leadership organs for the United Front system. And at the highest level, it's run by the fourth-ranked Politburo Standing Committee member, so effectively nominally China's fourth most senior politician, Wang Yang. And then you have a, a leading small group that brings together about two dozen agencies involved in United Front work. The leading small group is sort of hosted or run by the United Front Work Department, but there are 20 or more agencies that are also involved in that. And that that really speaks to to how much more it is than just the United Front Work Department. And that's really important for policymakers to understand, because I think one of the implications of that is that it's a whole sort of stream of work that the party carries out, just like every party official is supposed to carry out propaganda work. You know, the whole party's involved in what they call organization work, and they have to be cognizant of the party's foreign affairs goals, for example. The same applies to United Front work, where it's supposed to be carried out by the whole party and emphasized by the whole party. There are some interesting changes going on, for example, in the foreign affairs space, where I think previously the United Front Work Department and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs sort of shared responsibility for influencing diaspora communities, but now it's clearly 100% the United Front Work Department's uh, area. And this means that I think a lot of Chinese officials posted abroad are going to be responsible to the United Front Work Department more than they were previously. That targeting of the overseas Chinese communities is something that you talk about a bit in the report as well. And I think a, a really interesting um, section of the report is the kind of the, the propaganda arm of the United Front. So the the targeting um, of Chinese language media outlet outlets. Um, you've got you've WeChat accounts. Um, can you tell me a bit more about how that actually works on the ground and when how they target the Chinese um, overseas Chinese communities? Yeah. So so the the, the media side is really interesting aspect of United Front work because I think they've got a special responsibility for influencing overseas Chinese language media. A lot of people have written about the propaganda department's efforts to buy radio stations around the world, but 
I think it's the United Front Work Department through its news agency, China News Service, that is responsible for influencing Chinese language media and through that overseas ethnic Chinese communities. Uh, some of, some outlets seem to be covertly run by them. In the report, I identified about 26 WeChat accounts that looked like they were run by local overseas media companies, but they're all registered to a subsidiary of the United Front Work Department. And one or two of them were known fronts for the United Front Work Department. In terms of their broader efforts to influence overseas ethnic Chinese communities, I think it's really focused on going after people who they identify as leaders or representatives of these communities. They're not especially concerned, I think, with getting every single person in the Chinese community behind them. So a lot of people will point out that, you know, the average person in the Chinese community doesn't have anything to do with the United Front system. And, and I think that's true. Uh, but their focus is really on this small elite of people who can claim to represent ethnic Chinese communities, because that's incredibly powerful in terms of political mobilization and political influence. And that sort of brings me to my next question um, about the case study that you referenced in the Australia case about um, Huang Xiongmoor, who um, you, you go into some detail about, and, and I find it really interesting because you talk about how uh, the United Front um, operations in Australia, I guess, are quite mature um, and how politicians find it quite difficult to actually not associate with these groups who are connected to the United Front, which, of course, legitimises them um, and, and has the perception that they reflect the whole um, Chinese community at large, I guess. So could you tell me a bit about what happened with Huang Xiangmo, um, and here in Australia? Huang Xiangmo is a Chinese property developer, billionaire, who was reportedly kicked out of the country. He had his permanent residency cancelled in late 2018. And reports at the time claimed that uh, ASIO had determined that he was amenable to conducting acts of foreign interference. And that's probably a, a six or seven year history of being at least linked to those kinds of activities where he arrived in Australia, very quickly became leader in several United Front groups, hired some United Front figures as advisors to his, his property development company. He hired ex-politicians. Uh, he used these people to sort of build networks on both sides of politics, and through his associates, his companies, and his own name, donated more than $3 million to political parties. And some of that's now being investigated by uh, the New South Wales ICAC, Anti-Corruption um, Commission. Uh, so, so it's a really concerning case of someone with quite clear links to the United Front system. As soon as he went back to China, he turned up at a United Front forum attended by Xi Jinping, uh, this kind of person claiming to represent Chinese communities, mentoring young, uh, politically minded Chinese Australians. That's really disruptive in a multicultural society. But I think the same thing will be happening and probably has happened, just uh, hasn't been noticed as much in Canada, the US, uh, the United Kingdom um, and, and, and Germany. It's quite remarkable in the report, you, you detail how he's connected to, or Huang Xiangmo is connected to, you know, former prime ministers and, and the, the ties, of course, to the now infamous um, Dastiari case and the initiation of university-affiliated groups in Sydney. And it's, it's 
quite amazing the the, the tracking the influence that that was um, able to happen while he was here in Australia. So I suppose that leads me on to my next question, which you touched on is is the other case study that you have about the the work in other Five Eyes countries, particularly in the UK. Christine Lee, a British lawyer, is 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 the example I've given in the report. Uh, she's like Huang Xiangmo, a member of several United Front groups in China that are directly run by the United Front Work Department. But in the UK, she's actively involved in efforts to encourage Chinese people to participate in politics, which is which is a great thing, but it's concerning if you're linked to this part of the Chinese Communist Party is effectively tasked with influence work. And just like Huang Xiangmo, she made large donations to politicians and her son uh, was working in a politician's office. And this politician was pushing quite hard for the Hinkley Point nuclear deal between the UK and China, uh, which was a sort of joint nuclear uh, power plant project. And he was saying that the UK should sign up to this deal, even if it isn't financially viable, just to show that they're welcoming to Chinese trade. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I think just just to finish up, I, I was hoping you could just talk me through some of your recommendations that you go through at the end, um, recommendations for governments in Australia and across the Five Eyes community about what they can do to counter some of this united front work and raise awareness around its existence. Other countries uh, should start, first of all, looking at this issue and trying to find united front networks in their country and develop the analytical capability to do that. And I think what they'll find is that the things we've seen in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, are, are happening in many, many more countries across Asia, Europe, and, and the Americas. And I think they should follow by implementing similar foreign interference laws to Australia. But one thing that I think all countries need to work on is engaging with ethnic Chinese communities and building a kind of civil society media response, because that's what's been most effective in Australia. It was all of the attention that great investigative journalism uh, shunned on United Front work that really stopped it. It was only later that I think Huang Xiaomo got expelled from Australia, for example. So being able to engage with Chinese communities, activate media, protect the independence of Chinese language media, going to be really big challenges in the future. And I think people around the world are going to be watching how Australia grapples with these issues. Great. Thank you. Thanks. If you'd like to hear more on Alex's latest paper, you can rewatch our recent webinar on the topic or read the report itself. You'll find the links to both of these in the description below. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you'd like to join the discussion about anything we've touched on here today, you can always tweet us at aspie underscore org. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>